Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clannan. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows, Insight and Focus. Between 1980 and 1999, there were 137 coup attempts around the world. 59 were successful. In the same period, the percent of the world's governments that were democracies rose from 25% to 55%. From 2000 to 2020, there were only 51 attempted coups, and only 23 were successful. In about the same period, the rate of democracies in the world remained stable. In other words, in the last decades of the 20th century, the world saw instability as non-democratic regimes crumbled and democracies took their place. In the first decades of this century, the world and democracies around it saw greater stability. On the face of it, this paints a very favorable picture of democracy bringing relative calm to the world and standing strong. In 2016, though, a professor and scholar at Princeton University, Nancy Bermeo, took a closer look at this trend. What she found was less encouraging. Yes, democracies were experiencing fewer outright coups. Instead, however, she argues that democracies around the world are suffering from something she refers to as backsliding. According to Bermeo, Backsliding denotes the state-led debilitation or elimination of any of the political institutions that sustain a democracy. Instead of traditional coup d'etats, in which either the military or someone else overtly topples the government to install some new regime, there are promissory coups, in which the government may be toppled, but democratic pretenses are kept up and elections are promised, hence the name promissory coup. Instead of executive coups, in which a sitting leader of a country seizes dictatorial power and ends democracy, there is executive aggrandizement, in which the sitting leader's power grows incrementally and usually within the confines of democratic rules. Instead of outright election fraud or the rejection of election results, there is strategic manipulation of the electoral system in order to enhance certain voter preferences and diminish others, to produce a more reliable result without explicit vote tampering, in order to keep up appearances of democracy. Democratic backsliding is crucial to understanding current challenges and troubles for democracy around the world, especially because it can be hard to see compared to those traditional forms of political instability or democratic collapse. So, we're going to go through each of these forms of democratic backsliding, that is, promissory coups, executive aggrandizement, and strategic manipulation, in detail to explain what each of them is, why there's been a change from the traditional tactics, and where we can see each one happening today. Right. So, first of all, I think we want to talk about promissory coups and 
promissory coups as opposed to traditional coup d'etats. So what is a promissory coup? Well, it's when an actor within the state apparatus, that could be the military, the police, or someone else within the system, executes a coup and in the process promises to schedule elections or some kind of democratic reform. Usually they'll do this claiming right, that they're acting in defense of democracy. Right, that's a very important aspect of it. Somebody has, you know, behaved against the interests of the democracy or broken the democracy, so we're going to throw them out of power, and don't worry, we're going to give you elections just uh, maybe next year, maybe two years, something like that. Yeah, maybe, (laughs) right. I mean, it's important to note that the track record of those people who are, or those, those groups, those actors, who instigate coups, their track record for improving democracy is generally pretty pretty bad yeah so i mean sometimes you'll see we're specifically talking about one article by uh, nancy bermeo called on democratic backsliding and, and she notes right that sometimes those who execute the coup will hold elections in the years afterwards but in doing so they'll often tilt the playing field in favor of selected candidates or they'll run themselves right we'll 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 hold elections in two years but that'll be with a new electoral map which is severely tilted to our advantage and also we're going to intimidate people who might run against us because by the way we overthrew the government that means we are the ones with lots of guns usually right (laughs) yep right so even if they do hold elections they tend not to be you know very good ones. Right. And uh, the opposition, a political opposition, can theoretically win in those situations in Vermeer notes that they have, but that hasn't had a strong impact when the opposition wins. It has not tended to have a strong impact on improving the, the quality of democracy. Even if a promissory coup is real and legitimate, and they actually are acting in the interests of the democracy, and they actually do hold the elections, and they actually are free and fair, even then, best case scenario, your democracy probably wasn't in a very good place if the military or someone else has to step in and throw somebody out. Right. So it's usually a tough position to recover from. But in most cases, it's not a best case scenario. Right. So if you're, you know, a bad actor acting against democracy on purpose, why would you do a promissory coup instead of, you know, just doing an outright coup? Why why promise elections if it's all bogus? Right. I mean, I think that the the important thing here is that it helps to preserve some semblance of an image of democracy. And think about it this way. Let's say, you know, and we have some nation where the military takes over the government and they do it in a way that we would call open-ended, right? They, they just take it over and they're saying, we're in charge now. The international community might respond by saying, well, that's not okay. We're going to institute economic sanctions and we're going to punish you and you're going to punish your people and you're going to, you know, you're going to go hungry or maybe even we'll intervene. We'll send in the troops. We'll put boots right. on the ground and, right. and, and we'll punish you. We'll throw you out of power. If you were to say, well, you know, we're going to hold elections three years from now, four years from now, that might relieve some pressure, right? There, then right. you can say, well, look, things were really unstable. There were these problems going on at home. This past most recent election was fraudulent, so we had to step in. And we're gonna, we're just going to make everything really orderly, give us a couple years, and then we'll go back to elections. That can relieve some pressure. It gives you a pretext. And so the international community is, might not be so eager to step in if you present the possibility that you're going to make a change. And maybe no one in the international community actually believes you, but 
you have this it's, story, it's, it's you have hard. coverage, it, and then they're like, well, we hope that you'll do this transition to democracy in three years, as you say. It, it, it can be hard. So the the trouble is in international organizations or in sort of situations where you've got multiple countries coordinating, trying to work out what are we going to do together about this. Right. It can be very hard to justify action because there's inevitably going to be somebody who doesn't want to, and it can be hard to convince them to come on board when they can say, well, maybe we should just wait and see. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't have multiple countries trying to coordinate or an international organization trying to coordinate efforts, even if it's just one country, say the United States, the countries that are probably going to act against this kind of effort are democracies. Mm -hmm. And in democracies, it can be also hard to muster domestic political support for severe actions. You know, sanctions on a country are going to hurt them, but they also might have economic impacts on the home country. And either business interests or even popular interests might say, we don't want that. You know, they're going to have, let's wait and see. So what it does basically is it just makes it very difficult to muster that effort from abroad. And also, besides the international sort of benefits that a promissory coup yields, it also has benefits for those doing the coup domestically. It can confuse opposition or defuse even just a small portion of civil society backlash mm-hmm. as people or civil society organizations within the country may have the same reaction that going up against this group could be really violent, could be really brutal. And, you know, maybe we don't need to, maybe we should just, you know, wait and see a little bit. It basically provides a pretext for a little bit more of a cautious approach, which, you know, again, the common theme here is that it can buy the people doing the coup time, which is very valuable for one reason in particular. Right. They can consolidate their power in the time, right, in the supposed time frame that they've issued. And so, you know, three years later, when they don't actually hold elections, or if they hold elections with their very, you know, specific selected candidate who's really just going to prop them up, you they've know, had three years. It's harder to get domestic opposition going. Right. Maybe they found allies in the international system to back them up. The pretext is just very useful. Yeah, um, it gives them gives them time to just basically consolidate their position. Right, and as Bermeo notes, almost all recent coups in the time frame she's talking about, she's writing writing in 2016, but it remains true. Almost all coups are promissory coups. It's no longer really the case that someone will execute a military coup without you know promising that elections are going to occur anytime in the near future the the example that that we're going to talk about and right now and of course there are some coups and we just i wrote an article recently about sudan where it's a pretty outright coup it's pretty obvious and actually we've seen this year an uptick in outright coups around the Mm -hmm. world and so if you're interested in why that might be happening that's sort of we're not going to talk about that today we don't have the room right but if you're interested in that topic we'll link that article in the notes and it's an interesting one and you'll learn a lot but the example today is not sudan but we're going to be talking about Myanmar. Right. So, yeah. Harry- so that was, you know, the coup occurred just this year, February of this year. If you don't know some brief context about Myanmar, they began a transition to democracy away from uh, military rule earlier in the last decade. But the transition was, you could say, definitely flawed. The main issue that you might have heard about was the genocide of Rohingya Muslim minority in Myanmar. 
but it was a transition to some kind of more democratic order. Elections were held in November of last year, so November 2020, around the same time as elections were held in the U.S. They were generally regarded as free and fair by the international community, although there were some complaints. But in February, as I said, of this year, the military seized power. They claimed that there had been fraud in the November elections, and they said they would schedule new elections in 2023. And just to give you a hint or a taste of how poorly things turn, even under from a flawed democracy to military rule, um, a lot of protesters have been killed. The military junta's response to COVID has been very lackluster, and the Myanmarese economy is rapidly failing. So not pretty, not pretty. So even though they're, you know, they might promise democracy and elections at the end of the day it's a pretty pretty serious breakdown of domestic order and right. of democracy right. and we don't know i mean maybe I mean, maybe they will hold elections in yeah, 2023 uh, as again as as we've said probably tilted very much in their favor and that's and there you go there's the exact advantage of the promissory coup it leads people observing the situation saying maybe they will well, and it's very costly to take that bet that they won't yeah so you know there you go. So that's the promissory coup and why it's so much more common than traditional coups. And we can see a good example, as we said, in Myanmar today. But now let's talk about executive aggrandizement, the second form of democratic backsliding, according to Bermeo. What is it? Why is it taking the place of executive coups? And where is it happening? So... What is executive aggrandizement? Well, Bermeo writes it, describes it very well. She says it is, quote, when elected representatives weaken checks on executive power one by one, undertaking a series of institutional changes that hamper the power of opposition forces to challenge executive preferences. So in plain terms, what this means is that sitting executives, such as a president or a prime minister, might expand their power over the legislature or the courts or elections or civil society. This often occurs when elected officials have already won control of government through democratic means, and usually, though not always, like in the case of the United States, that means they had popular support at one time. And then once in power, they essentially erode the ability of opposition to check them, mm -hmm. even if they should in the future lose that popular support. And importantly, they often appeal to that popular support saying, I'm representing the people in doing this. And the opposition is trying to undermine the preferences of the people. But maybe four years later, when the people feel a little bit differently, well, it can often be too late. So right. why would an executive do this instead of just saying, Forget all this. The people love me. I'm taking dictatorial control. Yeah, I mean, it it functions in a somewhat similar way to the promissory coup, actually, right? Why would the, why would the executive not just seize power in this sort of open ended fashion? Because going through these legal or even constitutional mechanisms preserves the image of democracy, right? And that has sort of important consequences for how you deal with international or domestic competition, right? As in the case of promissory coups, you know, it can prevent sort of immediate international and domestic backlash that might upset some aspiring autocrats chance of consolidating power particularly in the domestic context by working in a slow kind of incremental creep it it can disarm critics of a, of a, of a clear smoking gun 
and empower supporters, right? So this idea is that, you know, someone, it's it's sort of like salami tactics when things are done in little slices such that you don't know quite when it's the like whole a, salami it's, has it's been it's cut like up. It's like a charcuterie board of authoritarianism. Yeah, exactly. It's tasty. <laughs> but the idea is... You, that, you, you, you eat one cracker, sausage, and cheese, and suddenly you've eaten a dozen of them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not... It's, it's It can be difficult to pin down and identify. And so if you have any kind of a long-term plan, you can sort of execute things in steps such that your support becomes, if not ironclad, because you're still adhering to some constitutional process, much stronger. Your hand right. becomes much stronger against right. potential opposition. Right. And the one other thing I wanted to say is that this almost ironically or paradoxically shows the extent to which we normatively subscribe to the values of democracy, right? Tease that out for me. Sure, yeah. Is what you're saying, like there is a general belief among a lot of people in the validity Right, in the international and in the domestic system, there is a lot of belief in democracy as the right form of government. We even have sort of rules in the international system and rules in in, in domestic politics as democracies become more stable that should stop these things, but that they can be be chipped away. But there's this idea that you can't violate this, this really important taboo, which is not to be a democracy anymore. So you have to do it by, in the case of a promissory coup, well, we'll get back to democracy in three years. Or in the case of executive aggrandizement, you never even say we're, we're we're getting rid of democracy. You just execute these steps to for whatever reason, right? We need to you know make the we need to make the courts more efficient, and all of a sudden there goes the court independence, or right. the legislature doesn't actually need as much money, and all of a sudden they can't write laws because they don't have staff to help them anymore. I mean, these are the kinds of things right. that you can do to to right. make it to increase your power as the executive. All the while, you've got the little name tag on your desk says democracy exactly right exactly even as you know you've pulled out all the drawers and right. hacked up the top of the desk yeah still has the little, name, the tag. little name tag and that's, and important. that's important and that, that's important because people do care about democracy because when people take a picture of the president they see the name tag and they don't see all those missing drawers behind the desk right i mean not to take the analogy too far but i think it is important because right. that imp- that appearance that moniker of democracy is so crucial because it's what people see and people want to see that they want to be able to say i i do live in a democracy right i i I, I like being a citizen not a subject right the twisted thing of course is that people have found these ways to sort of maneuver around democracy and that has had within the confines of the like the checklist of things that we say this is what democracy is these institutions are what democracy is anyway we've gotten into a little bit of a digression where are we seeing this happen today philip tell us So the thing with executive aggrandizement is that it's actually one of the most common forms of democratic backsliding we see in the world today. Partially, that's because it can happen on a kind of sliding scale, as opposed to promissory coups, which sort of just happen. You can slowly sort of chip away, as as you said, Harry, slowly chip away. So this sliding scale allows, it's much more, let's say, accessible. So it's happening all around the world, but... Today, I think let's we, we want to talk about the United States. As provocative as that might be for some listeners, we are seeing this form of democratic erosion, democratic backsliding here at home. Sad. And the ways in which we've seen it, just to get into a brief example, because you know we don't have time to do the full detailed history and the you know the whole breakdown. But for one, Congress has become increasingly gridlocked and less willing to assert itself against the president. 
And the new executive bureaucracy has grown. Presidents have developed a range of new powers that they've been able to exercise. I mean, one of the most obvious instances of this has been in the national security apparatus, which we talked a little bit about in last week's Bird's Eye episode. If you haven't listened to our series on the stationary bandit, it's great. You should. But what that means basically is that presidents have been partially empowered by Congress and partially sort of asserted the power themselves, Mm -hmm. which Congress has not contested when it happens, to command the armed forces in combat without a congressional declaration of war. I mean, we've almost gotten used to that, and it seems kind of normal, and it's been justified by saying, like, the president is the commander-in-chief, blah, 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 but that's not normal historically for the U.S., and it's also pretty... uh, Well, it's normal for the past 70 years. We haven't declared war since World War II. Yeah, but, you know, we've been around for, like, 250. Uh, Yeah, yeah, we have been, but it's it's, it's a newer development. Right. Yeah, but it's been going on for for some time now, but, yeah, I mean, and and now it's, like, an everyday thing. And then, then of course, we see in the early 2000s the empowering of the National Security Agency, which is underneath the president. It's Mm -hmm. in the executive branch. Right. With things like the Patriot Act. Right. You know, which just gives the president, gives the executive branch extreme latitude to survey citizens and do all these things right but in the u.s we've sort of also seen it in domestic politics right where presidents have increasingly sort of issued executive orders to the bureaucracy as a way of affecting policy change and signaling that they're serious about certain issues to their constituents and in the u.s it's it's not a case of one party or individual right we've seen a steady increase in executive orders across parties it's an increase in the powers of the institution in the office of the presidency largely because of congressional abdication of responsibility either either inability to function or unwillingness unwillingness to function function. yeah that and and that you know uh, it's not like one individual has consistently increased their power and become more and more of a dictator, but we have now what we call colloquially, right, the imperial presidency. And that could have dangerous effects in the near term, especially with partisan polarization increasing. And so, you know, one party gets in power, what are they going to decide to do with, you know, the enormous power wielded by this, you know, single office, which is not as you said, not not quite the historical norm for the United States. And, and that points out an important idea. Just to throw out there, we'll touch on a little bit more in the conclusion that sometimes these forms of democratic backsliding aren't pursued either super intentionally or even if they are intentional, they're not always pursued because whoever's pursuing them wants to dismantle democracy. Right, that's a often, good point. Often it's either completely unintentional or done because people think that what they're doing is going to be good for democracy right. in, the, in, the, in the long term. Right. But, right, but it is nonetheless a form of backsliding right. because it is a decrease in accountability for the office of the presidency, a fraying of the checks and balances which are supposed to govern our system. And right. so it's disturbing in that sense. Right. Okay, so we've gone through promissory coups in Myanmar and executive aggrandizement in the United States. Let's run through the third and final key form of democratic backsliding that Bermeo identifies, strategic manipulation of elections. What is it? Why is it happening? Where is it happening? Strategic manipulation of elections, 
again, is sort of this foil to outright electoral fraud or uh, vote modification or vote tampering. Think like stuffing the ballot box on the day of an election is the most like egregious way to think about right. outright electoral fraud. Right, right. Instead of that, Bermeo describes it as, quote, a range of actions aimed at tilting the electoral playing field in favor of incumbents. These include hampering media access, using government funds for incumbent campaigns, keeping opposition candidates off the ballot, hampering voter registration, packing electoral commissions, changing electoral rules to favor incumbents, and harassing opponents. But it's all done in such a way that the elections themselves do not appear obviously fraudulent. So... Why would you go through all this trouble? This seems like a bunch of hoops to jump through. Right. Uh, why not just stuff the damn ballot box? I mean, same result, right? It, it is kind of confusing, right? But like the other ones, this hinges on this appearance of democracy. And we can't hit home strongly enough how uh, important this appearance of democracy is. In this case, Bermeo attributes it to election monitoring. Right, the uh, international bodies are sending observers to report on election integrity, which makes it hard for governments to get away with sort of these, you know, overt uh, tampering methods, vote changes without without any kind of right, notice. Because you're going to have some international body jumping down your neck and telling everyone about what happened. Right, exactly. And domestically, this can also diffuse the political opposition, right? Rhetoric, you can sort of issue out rhetoric that claims that these voting regulations are actually designed to protect democracy. And you can confuse and lead people to believe that it isn't anti-democratic at all. I mean, right. It's a similar situation to executive aggrandizement. You do these little things, you throw in some rhetoric that says it's actually something else, it's, in, it's supporting democracy, and suddenly you've got an opposition that's divided on it, some saying, you know, maybe not, maybe it's legit, others saying it, it isn't legit, and then you've got supporters who feel emboldened who can return to these rhetorical arguments and say, no, 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 it's not BS, I mean, it's totally legit what they're doing. Right. They're requiring voter IDs to protect democracy, not disenfranchise people. Right. And also, Bermeo knows international observers, but of course there's also, like in the United States, domestic observers of democracy, ballot right. watchers, poll watchers, and domestic media organizations that are exactly. at all these precincts watching what's going on. And it's it's very hard to pull off that kind of a stunt to uh, like maybe we saw more in the past. All in all, both internationally and domestically, this is not unlike promissory coups in that it buys opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, by tilting the electoral playing field, mm -hmm. you can get more of your guys in power, and that can that's usually used to facilitate executive aggrandizement. They usually right. go pretty hand in hand. As a party consolidates its winning position and it's, it sort of entrenches itself against opposition, it can do more manipulation and redraw voting maps, or it could empower an executive either granting more surveillance power, which mm -hmm. could give them a better idea of how to manipulate things or empower the executive to do things like jail the opposition. Right. I mean, like lock her up. Like, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you could say like, okay, so it's illegal for it's voting harassment and therefore illegal for a candidate to pass out flyers on this street corner. So to protect <laughs> the integrity of elections, we have to lock her up. You know, right. I mean, it's the, 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 you can do those kinds of things in the interest of protecting democracy to protect voters from being harassed or something like that. Right. Right. Uh, or false advertising. You can say, though, the ads that say this against the regime are actually false. So we have to lock them send him to jail. This might sound to a lot of listeners like, oh, this is the kind of stuff that's happening in the US. And we've, you know, I've kind of... You're saying in the Republican state legislatures right now. 
Well, yeah, I mean, but also uh, just gerrymandering. Yeah, gerrymandering happens in democratic states. Voter IDs are more popular among Republican states. Yeah, but but it's it's happening all over the U.S. And we've both sort of hinted at that with jokes or asides. But we're actually going to talk about Hungary as a prime example Mm -hmm. instead. Our friend Victor Orban. So friend of the pod, Victor Orban. (laughs) He's a big fan. Yeah. Um, But Harry wrote a really great article a little while ago. sort of briefly breaking down what's gone on in Hungary. So if this story interests you, check it out. If it worries you, it's worth noting that Fox News host Tucker Carlson paid a visit to Orban and reported that Hungary was freer than America. But since Harry wrote it, Harry, why don't you tell us how have we seen this sort of uh, strategic manipulation in Hungary? Yeah, definitely. So in 2010, Viktor Orban's party, Fidesz, won a parliamentary supermajority, so 66% of the seats in the parliament, even though they had a bare popular majority. So they won 66% of parliamentary seats with a little over 50% of the popular vote. And wielding this sort of disproportionate majority, Orban basically rewrote the country's constitution, including um, amending electoral laws to make it easier to maintain his supermajority. And that's paid off in the past two elections that have taken place since 2010. Fidesz has twice failed to capture more than 50% of the vote, but has twice succeeded in maintaining that supermajority, which is a product of those new biased electoral laws. Meanwhile, they do all this while playing by the rules. Right. We have a supermajority. The Constitution says this much of a vote can amend the Constitution. Okay, we did it all legally. Okay, we've got electoral districts, but right. they're totally free and fair. Anybody can vote, blah, yeah. blah, you know, all this stuff. Right. No it parties just, are, I, I don't believe there are any parties that are banned from, from participating in, in right. elections. It's all um, legit. They followed the rules and they just wrote new rules, which are within the confines of what is an acceptable rule. Right. 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 It just turns out that it generates incredibly disproportionate proportionate and favorable outcomes. Shocker. Yeah. And so in addition to that, right, his his allies have also his, you know, political allies, allies in politics, allies in the business class have bought up just about all major major media companies in Hungary. And they've cracked down on dissident publications, buried them in fines, forced them to close shop or sell off to his his cronies. Right. So he's found this great success. Viktor Orban has found this great success in strategic manipulation, which has forced basically all other parties in Hungary from the left all the way to the actual far right to join forces against him. And even still, they have this uphill battle because the the way that the electoral maps are drawn is tilted very hard against them. They don't have a voice in the media to, you know, have their get their message out to to Hungarian citizens. And so Viktor Orban could be I don't I don't actually know what his like approval ratings are right now. He, he could be unpopular. It doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter as much. I mean, maybe these people will win. But even then, even if they do win, you have to have this really broad coalition of parties right. against him. Right. And it's hard to say whether they can hold it together. Right. And so all of a sudden, let's say they win. Orban might start looking pretty good again in, you know, in in four in 2026. Because it's really hard for this coalition to do anything to productive. Do anything. And it could even collapse before then. Right, right. So it's uh, he's made it very, very difficult to dislodge him. All while playing within the rules. All while playing within the rules. And that's crucial. So the big question of this episode is one that we've really been dancing around recently with a lot of our articles and mm-hmm. episodes of Bird's Eye. I mean, it's something that's of central importance to a situation in which democracy is languishing. Mm-hmm. And that is, can process, can the rules of democracy save us? 
Now, in most cases of democratic backsliding, I'd say probably besides promissory coups, Mm -hmm. so executive aggrandizement or strategic manipulation, process or the rules of a democracy are left intact. They are either followed assiduously to make sure that an air and appearance of legality is unassailable, Mm -hmm. or the rules are bent in their meaning to enable anti-democratic behavior, which points to the idea that process might not be enough if it's susceptible to this kind of attack. I mean, what do you do when the very thing that's supposed to protect you is turned against you? Right. I mean, it's, it's a tricky question because in so many ways, liberal democracy is the political regime which relies so crucially on process, right? We rely on regular elections, parliamentary procedures, judicial appointments and confirmations, all these things which are a set of rules to which we can appeal when things don't seem to be going our way or which seem to be neutral and not biased in the favor of, you know, one ideology or another. It sort of sets a neutral playing field in which we all sort of compete fairly for power. But the problem is that anti-democratic actors can exploit the processes of democracy to achieve their ends, right? And Bermeo notes, executive aggrandizement and strategic manipulation of elections take place over a long period of time. They can be hard to identify, especially when they're technically in line with the Constitution. And frequently, they also occur when anti-democratic actors have already acquired power democratically. In short, democracy absolutely needs process to be sustained. But it may be that process is not all-powerful to sustain democracy. Right. So what is process for, right? And this is, there are, I think, two main answers at either end of the spectrum here. The first camp, usually this is something you'll find on the left, but you also see it on the right. Increasingly on the right. Some say that process is bogus. The rules of a democracy are a neutral cover for a system that's designed exclusively to benefit elites. You can't fix it from the inside by following the rules. So screw the process. Mm-hmm. Forget about it. The problem is that if those who oppose anti-democratic actors simply cast aside process themselves, well, you open yourself up to new forms of attack no longer constrained at all by the rules. Right. I mean, if you thought it was bad that the rules could be bent, imagine what those people could do with you without any rules. Especially because they already have a vice grip on power. Exactly. Right. Right. If these are the people who are in power and use that power to bend the rules, imagine if they didn't even have to bend the rules. They could just, you know, go straight for you or go straight for the power. Yeah, I mean, these these processes of... of these aspects of democratic backsliding that Bermeo identifies indicate that as pernicious as they are, right, they're still constrained crucially by this image of democracy, right? That they're that that the executive is not willing to, you know, go for the the coup and it wants to, you know, chip away at the institutions because he or she can't just seize power in one day. There are these constraints that are placed on them by process. Right. And even though that's a tiny, tiny shred of protection it matters. It does matter. I mean, process, the point is that process, I think that you're making is right, process can be bent, right? And that's bad, right? We've talked about how it can be used to confuse, disorient the opposition. But at the same time, it still has this sort of protective element. Right. Um, and losing that entirely, 
I think would actually be catastrophic to any opposition to anti-democratic forces within a society. Right. So on the other hand, then you have others who say we should worship process. They point to it and they say it's sacrosanct, inviolate. But if we worship process, if we come to view it as immutable and the goal of politics rather than say, a useful means of achieving other political goals, we can become trapped in the very situations that Bermeo describes. Yeah, you could be trapped like the opposition, disarmed by the democratic pretenses and rule following of those who would piece by piece destroy democracy, yeah. right? You play, and if all you can do is just bow down to process and follow the rules assiduously, then... You know, you get pinned. Right. Just like Bermeo outlines. Right. Right. I mean, and and I don't think either of us have, we've been, I think if you've been reading our stuff and make it come through really strongly, may come across more implicitly, we've been wrestling with this question ourselves. The piece that's coming out by me tomorrow also wrestles with this question. I don't have a, a satisfying answer, and I wish I did, but I think in some ways, and this is an unsatisfying answer, is that it's context-dependent, it's contingent. When will right. process save us? When do we look critically at process and say, well, maybe this norm actually hasn't served democracy? Maybe it hasn't served the the, the ideal of self-government, and it can be cast aside, but again, that's a, a it's judgment call. Right. Um, it's contingent on the moment, and I don't think there's any way around and, that. And to an extent... That's just part of what being in a democracy is. Right. You know, nobody has the answers. Right. There are these answers of people who claim that they do. Right. But turns out those aren't very good answers, right? The two that we went through. Yeah. So you just got to wrestle with that idea. Right. And it's an important thing that we have to wrestle with. Yeah. That's it for this week on Bermeo's theory of democratic backsliding. In the coming weeks, we'll be looking at some of the examples that we talked about in this episode, like the United States or Hungary. So be sure to stay tuned. Until then, that's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website, also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter, if you haven't already, to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.